following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We'll be continuing our journey through 1 Peter. We'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And it's another challenging passage, another lighthearted passage, not really. Um, Peter's talking about persecution, which is something we're all going to face as Christians. You know, if we had our top five things that we really look forward to do, barbecue, football game, persecution number three, not really. But yet, as Christians, we have to be ready to face those challenges that come our way. We have to be ready to arm ourselves to withstand the attacks of the enemy. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage. You can either follow along or read. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them, into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Therefore, the church that Kyung and I went to before, any time the pastor was preaching, and the passage contained the word therefore, he always would tell us, anytime you're studying scripture and you run across therefore, you need to stop and ask yourself, what's it there for? This is a marker to something that happened previously. Before we can go forward and look at this passage, we need to understand the link that Peter's making to what occurred previously in scripture. And I think there's two things here. Specifically, he's talking about chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, where it points out Christ's victory over the spiritual forces of darkness. But in a bigger sense, I think we're also looking at what he alludes to in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23, where Christ, no matter what was happening to him, when he was being persecuted, when he was being uh, talked bad about, he never struck back at those that were against him. He always conducted himself in love in fellowship and concern for the other people. And that's a message to us that before we can go forward to understand this, we need to understand how Christ lived his life. In the very beginning, it talks about Christ's physical suffering. And some of us may be called upon to suffer physically also in our lives. Some of us may have already done that. Arm yourselves in the original Greek language The word is haplizo, and if you're a Greek scholar and I mispronounced it, a little bit of grace there. But Peter's making a very strong statement by this word. A haplizo, or what we would know, understand now as a hoplite, the Greek infantry, was a heavily armed soldier that carried the large spear, the large shield, armor. They worked together as a unit. So what Peter's trying to allude here is that it's not just small attacks. We need to be prepared for 
strong attacks from the enemy. If we don't prepare ourselves, we don't take advantage of the tools that are given to us by God, that we're going to get hurt in our lives. We're going to get knocked down anyway, but if we're armed properly, we can withstand those attacks that come our way. If you've ever watched the movie 300, King of Leonidas, I mean, that's what a hoplite was. I think Peter's also alluding uh, to the concept that they didn't act in one or two in, in isolation. They were a unit. They worked together. They covered each other. They supported each other. As Christians, we're called to do that ourselves, to support one another, to lift each other up, to pray for each other, for me to cover your flank, you to cover that person's flank, so that as one unit, we can move forward in this battle against spiritual forces of darkness. We're not, to, not meant to live this in isolation, but rather we, no matter what country we come from, no matter what organization, what denominational background, we're one. We need to work together. Also, the spiritual warfare battle between good and evil. And if there's anybody from Switzerland, no offense, but there's no Switzerland in this battle. There's no neutrality. You have to take a stand. By not taking a stand, you have taken a stand, and it's not with God. The end of this verse is a little bit challenging. Is Peter talking about Christ or is he talking about Christians? Contextually, it has to be Christians because it ties into verse 2 because it's talking about ceasing from sin. Christ didn't sin, so it can't be him that he's talking about. But Peter's not saying that we are going to live a sinless life. We strive for that. We try to do it. But rather, we try to be obedient to the calling of Christ and follow him. I know this doesn't apply to anybody here, but Kyung and I came from Okinawa, where driving is very organized and courteous, and they understand the zipper effect, and somebody tries to pull out, you let them pull out. And if you do that, you don't have six cars follow them, like drafting in NASCAR, come out after them. So when we got here, it was a, it was a challenge driving at first. Um, driving on Ring Road, I'm doing 90 and a 60, which is a d- different conversation for another topic. Um, but you look in the rearview mirror and you see this car coming up from behind and you think you're on the Audubon because they're closing at a remarkable rate of speed. And they zip around you and they cut right in front of you. And I'm the type that they put a horn on a car for a reason, so I'm using it. Uh, and I know culturally that's not a good thing to do here. But first couple times, laid on the horn, shaking my fist, not really the way a Christian's supposed to live. This is more what Peter's talking about that we're still going to have those moments where we slip, but our life is more one of we're trying to follow God, we're trying to be obedient and follow his teaching. But why should we do that? Peter explains the reason we should arm ourselves. The the reason that we should follow God's teaching is to live our lives carrying out God's will. We arm ourselves spiritually to withstand the attacks of the enemy, to live the godly life, which isn't easy to do, especially in today's world. There's so many distractions. When Peter's talking about lust, this is not uh, a word in sexual nature, but here it's a very strong craving. Uh, It's an evil craving, something that's just overwhelming you to do sinful um, actions. And then in verse 3, Peter's pointing out that as a believer, we've already spent enough time in sin. You know, whether we came to Christ 
at a young age or an older age. I didn't grow up in a Christian household. Um, my parents were not Christians. It wasn't until I was in high school. So I was involved in activities that I'm not proud of. So here Peter's talking about whatever you've done before, it's enough. Just stop. Stop and live the rest of your life for God. There's also a contrast between verse 2 and 3. Verse 2, it talks about you know, living for God. In verse 3, it's all the things that are the sinful nature of God. I mean, the sinful nature of, of the flesh. Um, it's also interesting that the list that Peter has here, there's six things that he puts out. Three of them are individual in nature, and three of them are group-type activities. Sensuality, this is to excite disgust or shock public decency. Lust, is, again, not just sexual in nature, but it's unrestricted, passionate longings to do things that drive us and overwhelm us. Drunkenness, I guess in 60 AD, being drunk was the same as in 2016. Drunk is drunk. The brands may have changed, but the end result is still the same. Then we talk about the group activities, carousing. Uh, I don't, yeah, we still have some children, so I'll kind of keep it PG. But to really understand the carousing, this was group activity during festivals. They would run the streets. They would do things that just unspeakable actions. Um, but yet it was part of society at that point. It was cultural norms. Drinking parties were really during the pagan festivals where everybody got drunk in group activities. Those things still happen today within uh, our cultures. And the one that's really interesting is abominable idolatries. As, as open and accepting as the Roman culture was for these pagan activities and for um, being involved in, in things against God, these were actions that even exceeded Roman law. It's kind of an indicator of how bad that was. I mentioned that I did not grow up in a Christian household. So, you know, when Peter's talking in verse 4, um, this may not pertain to a lot of you because you may not have gone from a position where you had friends and you were involved in activities uh, against God. But for those that did come from that type of background, you'll understand that when you change your behavior and your former friends look at you and you're not one of them anymore, because our values have changed as a Christian. We're no longer uh, engaged in the things of the world. We're no longer following the lust of the flesh. We're following God. And these people that used to be our buds for so long, they look at us and they think, what's wrong with you? What's changed? Why are you not long, no longer one of us? Um, but it just shows a shift that's taken place in our hearts and in our actions. The culture in Peter's day was one that idolatry and idol worship and drunkenness and carousing was just ingrained in society. But when we look at today's world, has, has many things really changed? We may not have the same idols that they had, but we still have idols in our life. Who chases a, a, a big job? I did that. Uh, I was in the military for 24 years, active duty, and then I did. When I got out, I thought, I'm going to go into retail management, and I'm going to move up, and I'm going to make a lot of money. And it was the worst decision I ever made. And it was a decision I made, really, I didn't 
I didn't really pray about that too, too much. Um, just a horrible decision. I can honestly say, and my wife's heard this before, uh, I deployed to Iraq, and I was there for five months. I had less stress in Iraq getting shot at than I had going to work as a manager in a retail chain. Um, it, it was horrible. But I was pursuing a job that I thought would get me ahead, would make more money for myself, where I'd get more prestige, bigger house, bigger car. But that's not what should be driving us. What should be driving us is, is following God's will, and, and I just absolutely blew it on that occasion. Um, and it took a while to regroup, and, you know, God's gracious, and, and we're here at this point. Uh, but there was tough times, some really tough times. I heard many times, um, my wife loves me, but it was like, you made the wrong decision. You made the wrong decision. It's like, I understand. I understand. You know, um, when Peter's talking about excess, this is a literal pouring forth or overflowing. Um, some scholars look at this that it's moral de- degradation to such an extent that the person has fallen into this sinful lifestyle and they're stuck in this muck and they can't get themselves out. Um, just uh, the state that, that they need uh, something else to pull them out. We get to malign. Malign doesn't sound great, but the, the original Greek word is much stronger than what malign is, and it's blasphemeo, um, blasphemy. But in the original language, this meant it was the strongest form of personal insult. It was degrading. It was mockery. It was slanderous accusations. It's an indication of the type of persecution that the people Peter's writing to were facing. You know, some people thought it was the Neronian persecution that started with the actual physical, but contextually it's, it's more likely that this was just society at large because Christians were not um, following cultural norms, that society was turning against them and slandering them. Peter then turns the reader's focus to the eternal rather than the temporal. People of the world in the flesh were living for the here and now. They only cared about what's good for today, whereas we know that today, when you think of everlasting to everlasting, our lives are just a minuscule puff of smoke on the timeline of eternity. Um, we know that there's something much better on the other side. But the unbelievers, the way they were living is, this is all there is. And I'm going to get as much as I can and have as much fun as I can and live it up as much as I can because there's nothing else. Peter points out we're all going to face judgment. The question is, is Christ going to be our advocate or is he going to be our judge? Just like Nate last week, the end of his verse, or end of his passage, uh, verse 6 is a very challenging verse. The question is, who are the dead that Peter's referring to? And there's really three positions on this. One is that it's the spiritually dead. The problem with this viewpoint is that the, the Greek word for dead, Peter never used in any of his writing to refer to spiritually dead. So we can probably throw that one away. He's not talking about those that are alive but spiritually dead. The second viewpoint is physically dead unbelievers. Again, there's a problem with that because repentance after death isn't supported by Scripture. 
Luke 16.26 and Hebrew 9.27. Once you die, there's, you're judged. There is no second chance. There is no Christ going to the dead and bringing them over to repentance. This would also go against the, the overall theme of the letter, which is Peter's talking about being steadfast, you know, being true to your calling, honoring God with your lives. But if we were allowed to live however we wanted to and then repent after we died, then what's the point of Peter writing this whole letter like this? It makes no sense. Then there's a third interpretation, which is the one that I feel best fits the passage. And Peter's talking about believers who have already died, those that have gone to live in the spirit with God. One other point culturally at that time, when you looked at the unbelievers and the believers, unbelievers looked at Christians who died, they're no better than us. You know, we're living our lives, having fun, carousing, and we die. They're trying to live a life following God that they don't believe, and they die too. So what's the advantage to being a Christian? So culturally, that was another reason for that. Overall, the, the main theme in this passage, and I think the whole passage hinges on two words, and that's arm yourselves. If we don't arm ourselves, the rest of this passage kind of goes out the window. Um, you know, as Christians, it's very easy to be comfortable, to be complacent, to cut corners. Um, well, I'm too tired to pray today, or I'll read my Bible later. But God gives us tools to arm ourselves, and if we don't take advantage of that, then we open ourselves up to getting damaged. I mentioned that I was in the military. I went to Iraq. Um, we were given gear to wear over there, and the gear was for a purpose. We had wonderful suede boots that don't breathe at all, but they keep the dust out. Um, you can ask Kyong afterwards. When I got back from five months in Iraq, my boots stayed outside for a week because of... It was pretty odiferous. Um, you know, we had our uniform. We had a vest that we wore that had armor plates in the front and back that fit into pockets. We had our gas masks. We had two quart canteens. You had your helmet. If you had a full com combat load of ammunition, you had five to nine clips. All that stuff weighs about 70 pounds. And for those that were here in March and April when it was 105 to 107, we would have said hallelujah for a day like that in Iraq. It was 125 to 130. And you have all this gear on, and you're sweating, and you're drinking, and it's not comfortable. I know how, to, how a turtle would feel because with these plates, that's kind of you feel like a turtle. And the next thing, you just kind of turn your head. It's kind of rough. What some guys were doing is they were taking the armor plates out of their vest because that cuts 20 to 30 pounds. It defeats the purpose of wearing the vest. And we were there a couple months. It probably was about a month. Everybody was forced to watch a video. And I thought about showing it, but it's probably been a little too strong for, for here. But it's ta insurgents take the video. It's on YouTube. You can Google it. You can find it real easy. It's from the viewpoint of the insurgents. They show an Army soldier by a Humvee. He's outside the vehicle. And you hear them talking in Arabic. And you hear a crack. And you see the guy drop to the ground. And about a second and a half later, he pops up and he runs behind the Humvee and takes cover. The bullet hit him right here. It cracked the plate and gave, gave him a contusion between golf ball, tennis ball size, 
Uh, that picture is on the Internet, too. But he armed himself. He protected himself with the gear that he was given, and he lived. Our oldest son was in the Marines for four years. He went to Afghanistan twice. Uh, the second time, he was in uh, the Marja Offensive. <clears throat> so we talked to him about two, two days before it started. And, you know, he was really worried, and he'd read the orders on what they're going to be doing. And I told him, you've got to just trust in your, in your training and the folks around you. And then we didn't hear from him for like three weeks. And every day I'm watching the news, you know, checking the Internet, trying to see if I could see him in, in pictures or video or whatever. It's, you know, a very challenging time. Um, but I saw this one picture. It wasn't him. And after I was able to talk to him again, I said, hey, you know, so-and-so, I saw this. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's my bud. We're in the same unit together. Well, this guy was on the roof of a building. He had sentry duty to watch. But what he didn't know was a sniper had him in his crosshairs. And a sniper took a shot at him. You can go ahead and throw that picture up now. Hit him right in the helmet. It would be very easy when you're up there and it's hot to take your helmet off and not arm yourself properly. Our son told, told me that the shot knocked him out, the concussion. But all he had was a contusion. His helmet did what it was supposed to do because he armed himself properly with what he was supposed to do. So how do we arm ourselves? Well, let's look at Jesus. Jesus is our example. When we look at the life of Jesus, he practiced a lot of spiritual disciplines. And that's how we can arm ourselves. First one is Bible intake. Now, that may be, you think, intuitive that all of us here were in mission community, that Bible is something we do every day. But according to one survey, the survey information I have is from American churches, American pastors. But at a conference with about 1,500 pastors, they surveyed them. 70% of the pastors said the only time they read their Bibles is when they're doing sermon prep. 70%. only time they read is when they do Bible prep. That should be pretty convicting. Um, you know, in today's day and age, we have Bible apps. You know, we can use our phones. We can use our iPads. You can listen to it when you're driving. There's so many tools that we can use to take in Scripture that there's really no excuse that I would ever have not to have daily intake of Scripture. But even when we read Scripture listen to it, we can ask ourselves six questions. Because we should be not just hearers, but doers of the word. First one, does this passage reveal something that I should believe about God? Something that I should praise or thank or trust God for? Something I should pray about myself or others? Something I should make a decision about? Or something I should do for the sake of Christ, others, and myself? When we read scripture, let, you know, let's dig into it. Let's, does this have a message to, for us? Does this have an application for us? Prayer. Prayer is another one. One of the main reasons for the lack of godliness is lack of prayer in our lives. Survey stats again. The average Christian in America spends five minutes a day in prayer. Five minutes. And I don't know if they're counting grace before their meals or not. So if that counts, they're maybe down to three and a half minutes at that point. Pastors. The average American pastor prays seven minutes a day. Is there any wonder that the church 
is in the state it's in if our spiritual leaders spend seven minutes a day in prayer. 80% spend less than 15 minutes a day in prayer. And the most generous of all the survey results said they spend 37 minutes a day in prayer. Look at Martin Luther, one of the pillars of the Reformation. He averaged two hours a day in prayer. Two hours in the morning before he did anything. He was quoted as saying when he knew it was a busy week, work, work from early to late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. That's counterintuitive. Why would we spend more time in prayer when we're busy? But he knew that if he put it in God's hands, if he laid it before the Lord, his life would go smoother. And he also was quoted saying, As it is a business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, it is a business of Christians to pray. Prayer is expected per scripture. Matthew 6, 5-7, Colossians 4-2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. And then how important, what are benefits? Neil Anderson, who writes a lot of uh, books on spiritual warfare, he was interviewing a former satanic high priest. So here's somebody who was on the other side who became a Christian. And he asked him, based on your experience on the other side, what is a Christian's first line of defense against demonic influence? The answer, prayer. And when you pray, mean it. Fervent prayer towards Satan's activity like nothing else. Prayer will protect us. And then if Jesus needed to pray, why would we think we don't need to pray? Jesus is our model. He was fully God, fully man. But he spent much time in prayer. Before he chose the disciples, he spent all night in prayer. The Garden of Gethsemane, he spent hours in prayer. Block of time each day. It's, it's best if I do it in the morning time. Because you get busy during the daytime, and then I'll do it later, and then later never comes, and then next thing you know, it's tomorrow, and we haven't prayed. Fasting. Fasting, biblical definition is just abstinence of food for spiritual purposes. But a broader definition today, because we, our lives are so busy, we have so many things in our lives, we can fast from food, or we can fast from TV, from Internet, from Facebook, I know that's tough, um, you know, from computer games, confession, I like to play soccer on the, on the computer, but all those things that take us away from spending time with God are things that we can fast from, eliminate from our lives to get closer to God. Scripture, Jesus expects his followers to fast. If we're followers of Christ, Matthew 6, 16 to 17. And when you fast, but when you fast. It's not if or if you feel like it, but when. There's a difference in that, in that wording. So if we're to be followers of Christ, then fasting should be part of our, our spiritual disciplines. Why should we fast other than following Jesus? Well, there's ten, ten things I have listed here. Fasting strengthens your prayer life. You can fast to seek God's guidance. Express grief. Seek deliverance or protection. Express repentance and return to God. Humble yourself before God. Express concern for the work of God. Minister to the needs of others. Overcome temptations. And express love and worship to God. So when you fast, make sure you're doing it for a reason, not just hint. It's not a dietary tool. When you're fasting, it's not to lose weight. It's to grow closer to God. 
Not that you would ever notice that with me. Um, something that's probably not a big issue with the congregation here, but evangelism. We're expected to spread God's word. But we must remember that sharing the gospel is evangelism. It's effective when we follow scripture, regardless of whether the person comes to Christ or not, because we can't force that. It's the Holy Spirit that draws them to Christ. But we need to be obedient and faithfully evangelize the gospel message. Service is another one. And remember, even when you can't see the results, God honors your service. Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So service is expected. Most of us are in some type of service, if not all of us. Um, Worship, we may take it for granted that once we come in this sanctuary and the music starts, that we're worshiping. That's not always the case. You know, for myself, if I don't check my baggage at the door and if I'm thinking about something else, I'm not worshiping God. If we're not thinking and concentrating on God when we're in here, we're really not involved in worship. So we need to make sure we get rid of all that baggage that we bring in. Um, you know, when it's 11:10 and you're thinking about where am I going to eat lunch today, your worship just kind of got interrupted. Think about that afterwards. Here's a tough one for the mission community here because I know we're so busy and we're involved in so many things. But Jesus sought silence and solitude. He got away from things. Matthew 4, 1, 14, 23, Mark 1, 35, and Luke 4, 42. In each case, Jesus tried to separate, well, not try, he did separate himself from everybody else to just get away, to take his break, to re-energize. That's why it's important to re-energize um, you know, being in Iraq and seeing some of the things that happened there and, and then coming here with the mission community when we first got here. There's something called battle fatigue. When you're in it so much and you're so busy, you kind of get that glazed look in your eyes and you become combat ineffective. Um, you know, that's why we need to pull ourselves out so that we can re-energize and get back in and be effective in our ministry again. We can't just do, do, do. Um, I remember Averill at elders meeting, we need to be human beings, not human doings. We can't be so busy. So I'm going to paint a, a, a mind picture here, the importance of spiritual disciplines and how it will aid us and empower our lives. If we look at our life as maybe a two or three foot circular disc, similar to like a stool, but bigger. And each spiritual discipline was maybe a 12 to 18 inch leg that we could put on this disc. If we put one leg, one spiritual discipline on underneath this disc, even if you put it in the very middle of it, maybe if you're really, really good, you could balance for a while. But it's going to take constant effort. And you're going to get tired. And when you get tired, you're going to fall. If you put two spiritual disciplines, even if you put them in line, a surfer or a skateboarder may do pretty good for a while, but they're going to fall over too because you're going to get tired. If you put three in there, finally you've got some stability in your spiritual life. You're not going to get just fall over by itself. You may still get pushed over depending on the storms you face. But as we put more and more of these spiritual disciplines in our lives, we become more and more stable and stronger, and we can withstand more and more 
um, attacks from the enemy. Now, Tim, if you were here, like New Year's resolution sermon, don't try to do everything at once. You know, if you're only doing one or two, don't try to add six because you're probably not going to be successful. Add one or two. You know, have your accountability partners or whoever pray with you and, and encourage you. But the more and more we add these to our lives, the more stable we are, the better we're armed, and the better we're able to withstand the attacks of the enemy and live this life that Christ wants us to live in victory. He doesn't want us to be fallen over. So let's add these and be successful and live our lives to glorify Christ. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much uh, for this day, for these people. I thank you for your word. Um, I would just pray that this message would go into the hearts of the people here, um, and myself too, that uh, it would be life-changing, that it would empower us to live in victory, strengthen us to withstand the attacks of the enemy, uh, and that just each day we could be more and more stable and more and more armed to withstand the things that come at us and to be able to just live our lives, to glorify you, to bring the gospel message here to Thailand, and to, to touch the lives of those people around us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.